Thanks for downloading today's podcast of Clearly Seen, taught by Mike Kokoris. I think you're going to enjoy what Mike has for you today. And if you're ever in the San Fernando Valley area of Los Angeles, we invite you to Lindley Church. Mike would love to meet you personally and answer any questions you have. Feel free to email your comments and questions to michael at kokoris.com. Now, let's hear from Mike. In the latter part of the 1960s, many students in America rebelled against the establishment. Do you remember those days? If you do, you are showing your age. They particularly targeted the Vietnam War, but that was not their only target. They wanted to change other parts of the system. One of the interesting things that happened during that time, and I lived through it, was that some of those people came to know the Lord. As a matter of fact, it was during that period of time that something happened called the Jesus Movement. Do you remember that? I lived through that as well. Some of these people really genuinely came to know the Lord. I was having... I was traveling about the country as an evangelist in those days, and I remember well that some of them would show up in churches uh, that I was speaking at and shocking the people that were there that had never seen anything like it, these long-haired hippies that had come to know the Lord. At any rate, uh, some of them decided that they wanted to go into the ministry, and they went to seminary. Now, about that time, I was invited to teach for actually one semester, at Dallas Seminary. Later, I taught there for five years, but at this particular occasion, I was only there for a year, uh, one semester, actually. And the place was full of these people from the Jesus movement that came to know the Lord. Now, their whole mentality was, we need to change the establishment. We need to change the system. So they took that mentality and applied it to the seminary, and they decided that they wanted to change the seminary. And one of the changes they wanted to make was to eliminate all tests. They didn't want to take exams. Well, I was on the faculty. I wasn't part of the student body, and I wondered how the faculty would handle this. I remember being in the meeting that was called to address the issue. The president at the time was Dr. Walvard, who is now with the Lord, and he presided over the meeting, a very gracious man. He listened to them, and uh, then he spoke. When they had got finished giving him what they wanted to do, mainly eliminate all tests, Dr. Walford calmly explained that tests were a fact of life. So they might as well get used to it, was what he said. I recall him saying that as a pastor, they would be graded every time they preached. And then he calmly said, the seminary will not eliminate exams. And that was the end of that. But Dr. Walford had a point, didn't he? Tests are a fact of life. You get them in school, 
teachers give exams. The state examines you if you want something as simple as a driver's license. And that's only the beginning. People grade us all the time. And even God tests us. Huh? I understand a teacher giving us a test. You mean God gives us a test? And the answer to that is yes. Well, if that's the case, it provokes all kinds of questions. Like, what is God's test like? Why does he test us? How do I prepare for his exams? What do I have to do to pass his exams? And what do I get if I pass? How would you like the answer to all of those questions? They are tucked away in Genesis chapter 22. So will you turn with me to Genesis 22? I'm not going to read the whole passage one at a time, all at a time. I'm going to read it piecemeal as we go through it. But let me simply start by saying that in this passage, God gives Abraham what amounts to a a revelation. And that's the first part of the passage, which just takes up the first two verses. Then Abraham responds to that revelation. And that takes up uh, down through verse 10. And in Abraham's response or reaction, God responds to him. So that's the passage sort of divides along those lines. What I want us to do first is simply look at this command, or I'm calling it revelation, that God gave to Abraham. Look at verse 1. Now it came to pass after those things that God tested Abraham. Stop. That's the theme of this chapter. God tested Abraham. Now, the author of Genesis, Moses, is telling us that up front. So we know from the very beginning that this is a test. But what's important is that Abraham did not know that at this point. Had Abraham known that at this point, it wouldn't have been a test. So while the author is telling us it's a test, the Lord did not tell Abraham it was a test, at least at this point. So the question rises, why did the Lord test Abraham? Well, this passage does not state that. It illustrates that to a degree. But the New Testament refers to this story and tells us what's going on. So how would you like the inspired explanation of this passage even before we look at it? Put your finger in Genesis 22 and turn to James chapter 2. This is one of the most infamous passages in all of the Bible, that faith without works is dead passage that everybody wants to quarrel about. But look what God says right in the middle of it. Look at verse 21. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? That is a direct reference to Genesis 
chapter 22. Wow. You mean you're justified by works? You mean you go to heaven by works? I mean, that's what it says. Abraham was justified by works. Wow. I thought the Bible taught you were justified by faith. And the answer is, you're exactly right. As a matter of fact, if you've been following me through the book of Genesis, if you'll recall, back in Genesis chapter 15, verse 8, it says, And Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him for righteousness. And Paul quotes that several times, once in the book of Romans, once in the book of Galatians, to demonstrate that salvation is by faith. The writer to the Hebrews also quotes that verse in Genesis 15. So Genesis 15, which happened years before chapter 22, says Abraham believed God, and that justified him before God. Now, James says there is a justification by works, that if you do what the Lord told you to do, if you work, serve him, There is a justification by works. Now, what does that mean? Well, it means several things, but one of the things it means, you're not going to impress God with your works. You're not going to get to heaven by being righteous or by being religious. You get to heaven by trusting Jesus Christ for the gift of eternal life. It's a gift. All you do is trusting. But Romans says, if Abraham were justified by works, he would have wherewith the glory. He could boast in that, but not before God. Interesting. We're justified by faith before God. That's all he cares about in terms of us getting to heaven. But we're justified before people by works. They see our works and say, oh, you have faith. As a matter of fact, look at verse 24. You see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. But the key is you see. God sees the faith and declares you have the gift of eternal life. People see works and conclude that you are obeying the Lord. But works do something else. And that is what I think is the key to Genesis chapter 22. Look at verse 21 in James 2. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac, on the, his son, on the altar? Do you see that faith was working together with his works, and by works faith was made perfect? Ah, one of the other things that works does is it perfects your faith. And as you know, the word perfect means mature. When you trust Jesus Christ, you're going to heaven. That's sealed and settled and nothing can change it. But when you start obeying the Lord, then that faith that you had at the beginning is strengthened and matured. And so what James is saying is that when you read Genesis 22, remember that what's going on is Abraham's faith is being strengthened and developed and matured. That is what is going on. Now, let me make a little uh, 
comparison. The Bible talks about trials. The Bible talks about temptation. And the Bible talks about test. And the tricky part about this is that sometimes it's all wrapped up in the same event. The trial is what we go through. The temptation is what Satan allures us to. And the test is from God's point of view. So from our point of view, it's a trial that is a heavy burden to bear. From Satan's point of view, it is a temptation to bring out the flesh in us. And from God's point of view, it is a test to bring out the faith in us. So Satan tempts us to bring out the sinful nature called the flesh, and God allows the test, the trial, to develop our faith. Now, if you get all that straight, then this stuff will make a whole lot more sense. So with that in mind, let's go back to Genesis chapter 22. Genesis 22 verse 1 says, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here am I. Then he said, take now your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, And go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains for which I shall tell you. So God says, what I want you to do is I want you to take your son, your only son. He had another son, Ishmael, but he was gone. And it's the one you love. I mean, he just heightens the nature of what he's asking him to do. And I want you to go to Mount Moriah. It's an interesting place in Israel, Mount Moriah. It's where David built an altar. It's where Solomon built a temple, and it's where Jesus Christ was crucified. It's a very historic spot. It's another word, another place called Jerusalem. So, he says, I want you to go, and I want you to sacrifice your son. Wow. Your only son. Wow. The one you love. Wow. Human sacrifice is repugnant to us. It's detestable. Why would God ever ask Abraham to sacrifice his son? Norman Godwin, in his novel, Jerusalem Diamond, as one of his characters say, quote, I don't believe in sacrifice. If the story of Adam, Abraham and Isaac is true, Abraham was insane, not religious, end of quote. I had a conversation this week with a pastor friend of mine in another state, and he said, what are you preaching on? I said, I'm preaching on Genesis 22. Wednesday night. And he said, you know, that is the hardest thing in the Bible for me to believe. Uh, That's the way a lot of people feel. Why would God ever ask Abraham to sacrifice his son? Well, 
as we've seen, the point of this story is it is a test. Did God intend for Abraham to sacrifice his son? No! He wasn't trying to destroy Isaac. He was trying to develop Abraham. He wasn't after uh, Isaac's life. He was after Abraham's loyalty. He wanted to see if Abraham would really trust him with the most incredible, imaginable sacrifice, his only son. During the Napoleonic Wars, there was a meeting of emperors, in, including Prussia, Austria, and the Russians. The discussion turned to the question of the obedience of their soldiers. They agreed that each one would call his personal bodyguard and command him to leap out of the second-story window. When the Prussian monarch gave the order to his bodyguard, his bodyguard complained, Your Majesty, it would kill me! When it was the Austrian soldier's turn, he said, If I do it, you really mean what you say? Like the Prussian soldier before him, he was dismissed and the Russian soldier was called in. Upon hearing the order to jump out of the second floor window, the Russian officer immediately started to obey. He stopped as he put one leg over the window ledge. He was stopped. These emperors did not intend for their soldiers to plunge to their death. It was only a test, and they pulled him back. And that's what's going here. God just wanted to see if he'd do it. God was testing his faith. Now, I'm not suggesting this was an easy test. I think the text is worded in such a way as to highlight the painful experience this was. This is your son. It's your only son. It's the son that you love. Now, when he lost Ishmael prior to this, the text tells us in chapter 21 that he was deeply grieved. So if he was deeply grieved in that case, you can only imagine how he would be even more grieved in this case. So God is simply testing him to see if he would really obey with no intention of actually having him carry it through. Does God test us like that? He tests us by giving us commands. He sometimes tests us by asking us to sacrifice what is the thing we treasure the most. God called on Abraham to make five great sacrifices. He was to leave his native country. He was to leave his extended family. He was to leave his nephew Lot. He lost his son Ishmael. And now he's being asked to sacrifice his son Isaac. So, the first two verses of this passage simply tell us, God revealed to Abraham, here's what I want you to do. What happens next in this passage is Abraham's response to that. So let's pick up the story in verse 3. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, took two of his young men with him, and Isaac his son, and he split the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place which God told him. The point is simply that 
he obeyed. Matter of fact, he obeyed immediately. There was no delay. There was no procrastination. The next morning, immediately, he gets up and leaves. Takes wood for the burnt offering. Verse 4 says, Then on the third day Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place afar off. He was in Beersheba at the time. He had to travel north to go to what is now Jerusalem. One author says that was a distance of 30 miles and took 20 and a half hours over three days. Another author says it was 45 miles, but you get the idea uh, of, of the relative distance between these two places, and it took three days for him to get there. But the point is, he did it the next morning. He didn't plan it for a week first. He did it immediately. That's important. He obeyed, and he obeyed immediately. But he did more than that. He not only obeyed, but underneath that obedience was a heart filled with faith. Look at verse 5. And Abraham said to his young man, the young men, stay here with the donkey. The lad and I will go yonder and worship, and we, and we, and we will come back. Now what does that tell you? Did he think he was going to kill Isaac? No. I don't know what he thought, but he didn't think he was going to come back without him. There are three verbs in this passage. Go, worship, and we will come. And the Hebrew texts are all intensive. He was determined to go. He was determined to worship. He was determined that they would come back. Now, this is nothing more than sheer faith. Uh, it is estimated that Isaac at this time was somewhere between 18 and 20 years old. So just add that to the equation. He's going to sacrifice his teenager. But it's very clear that he has faith. God is going to do something, so he's going to come back with Isaac. And that's an indication of faith. And I'm not just reading something into the text. The New Testament says exactly that. In Hebrews chapter 11, it says in verse 17, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promise offered up his only begotten son, of whom it is said, And Isaac your seed shall be called. So the book of Hebrews says what's going on in Genesis 22 is faith. Now what's also going on in Genesis 22 is works, but that's the test part. But Abraham did all of this by faith, as a matter of fact. Keep reading back in Genesis chapter um, 22. So Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son, and he took up the fire in his hand and the knife, and the two of them went together. But Isaac spoke to Abraham his father and said, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. Then he said, Look, the fire, the wood, but there's no lamb for a burnt offering. And Abraham said, My son, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. Underscore that. God will provide for himself a lamb for the burnt offering. God 
is going to take care of this son. I am trusting him. And then it says, the two of them went together. Verse 9, and they came to the place which God had told him, and Abraham built an altar there and placed the wood in order, and he bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar upon the wood. And Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife in his hand to slay his son. Wow. I would say he not only had faith, he had unwavering faith. He was going to go do exactly what God said, believing that God was not going to take Isaac away from him because both of them were going to come back down off the mountain. And by the way, this indicates that Isaac had faith as well because he got off, I mean, he could have gotten off and run away, right? So both of them had faith. It has been suggested that maybe Abraham believed that if he did kill his son, God had resurrected him. But he believed, he believed that God would provide. And that is the point. All right, well, so far we've seen two things. God gave Abraham a revelation. Go sacrifice your son. We've seen now the reaction of Abraham. He did it. The third thing that goes on in this passage is God's response. Pick it up at verse 11. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. And he said, do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God since you have not withdrawn your son, your only son, from me. That's an interesting statement. I want you to notice very carefully. Verse 11, who's speaking in this passage? Look at verse 11. Who's speaking? The angel of the Lord. Okay. And what does the angel of the Lord say? I know that you fear God, verse 12, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me, God. Matter of fact, in my Bible, me is capitalized, and it should be. The angel of the Lord in this passage is the pre-incarnate Christ. And as is the case in many passages in the Old Testament, I'm not sure that's the case in every passage, but it's the case here, as is clearly, clearly spelled out. The angel is talking. And he clearly says, you've not withheld your son, not from the angel, an angel, but from the Lord himself. So, we're told in verse 13, Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and there behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by its horns. So Abraham went, he took the ram, offered it on the burnt offering instead of his son. So, uh, Abraham saw a ram in the thicket. What did he say before? God will provide. And so what happened is, God provided. That lamb, that ram, was a substitute for Isaac. So God provided a substitutionary sacrifice. 
Think about that for just a second. Who was supposed to be sacrificed? Isaac. Who got sacrificed? The ram. The ram was a substitute sacrifice for Isaac. This is a perfect picture of the death of Jesus Christ. Who should have died for sin? Me. Who died for sin? Jesus. The Lamb of God, according to John the Baptist in John chapter 1, who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus Christ on the cross was a substitutionary sacrifice who died in our place to pay for our sins so that we don't pay for it. He did, and we get to go to heaven free because of what he did. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the Apostle Paul says, Christ died for our sins, according to the Scripture. This is the illustration of it. God provided a substitutionary sacrifice. So, verse 14 says, Abraham called the name of the place, the Lord will provide, as it said to this day. He did it in his day, and the author of Genesis says, and by the way, it's still called that, many years later. In the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. So, the Lord provided a substitutionary sacrifice And Abraham acknowledged what was going on and said, the Lord provided the substitution. In the Civil War, Abraham Lincoln decided that the American soldiers were dying. And he decided that one soldier should be his substitute. That maybe he should have died in that conflict. So he picked out a soldier, and there is till this day, I am told, in Strasburg, Pennsylvania, a tombstone with the name of a soldier, the date of his birth, and the date of his death, and inscribed on it is Abraham Lincoln's Sacrifice. That's what should be tacked on the top of the cross. Mike Kokoros' sacrifice. I should have died, and he died. He was the substitutionary sacrifice God provided. So, God provides for us. And in this passage, he provides a sacrifice. But he provides all kinds of things. You could take that one little phrase and go crazy with it. Does God provide? Does God provide salvation? Absolutely. As a free gift, all we have to do is trust him. So he provides sacrifice. He provides salvation instead of condemnation. He provides life instead of death. He provides strength for our weakness. He provides joy for our sorrow. He provides heaven Instead of giving us hell, God provides, and it all starts with a substitutionary sacrifice for our sin. Now, what's really going on in this passage is that God is fulfilling his promise. 
Matter of fact, verse 15 says, Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time out of heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, blessing I will bless you, and multiply, and multiplying I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven, as the sand which is on the seashore, and your descendants shall possess the gates of their enemies. In your seed all the nations of the earth will be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose together to Beersheba, and Abraham dwelt at Beersheba. Here's what's going on. God says, you obeyed me, I'm going to bless you. Now keep these things straight, because if you mix these things up, you're going to mess up. You have faith, and what do you get for faith? You go to heaven. Free. It's a gift. You obey, and what do you get? Blessed. Don't get those backwards. Don't think if you obey, you go to heaven. You obey because you believe. The obedience gets you blessing, not eternal life. So, this is the last time in Abraham's life that God speaks to him. And basically what he's doing is reiterating promises he's made before. And he's adding a few more besides. Before he said that he would bless Abraham. That's back in chapter 12 as well as chapter 22, verse 17. Before, he said he would multiply on Abraham's descendants. He said that in chapter 12. And he would bless all nations through Abraham. He said that in chapter 12. Now, in addition to those promises, God swears by himself that, this was, uh, that he would give all possible assurance to man. The promises were made because Abraham obeyed. This is the first occurrence of the word obey in all of the Bible. God promised to multiply Abraham's descendants as the stars and as the sand on the seashore. He's actually mentioned that before, which simply means that your descendants are going to be innumerable. At the time, man could only see about 3,000 stars. They didn't have a telescope. So if he says, I'm going to multiply you as the stars at that time, I mean, that was a lot. You're going to have 3,000 descendants. And of course, the sands on the seashore are an innumerable number you can't count. It's impossible to count. And God also promised that Abraham's descendants would possess the gates of their enemies. The gates of their enemies simply means the control of the city. They would conquer their enemies. Now, one more little thought. This is to Abraham's descendants called in the book of Genesis his seed. His seed is his descendants. And according to the New Testament, and for that matter, some parts of the Old Testament, there are four different types of descendants of Abraham. The first are the physical descendants of Abraham. You could be a descendant of Abraham by simply being born Jewish. The second type of descendant is a physical descendant of Abraham who has faith in the Messiah. So that is a physical slash spiritual descendant of Abraham. Or the third type is you could be like Abraham and have faith without being a Jew. 
So that's the spiritual descendant of Abraham. That's how we got in, folks, us Gentiles. That's how we got in. And the fourth kind of seed is Jesus Christ himself. And the New Testament spells all this out, and it does so very clearly. So the point is that God is simply saying, I am going to bless you because you obeyed me. Now, there's a few more verses left in this passage. And frankly, they're just a whole bunch of names. Beginning at verse 20 and going through the end of the chapter in verse 24, uh, he talks about a bunch of Abraham's relatives. Let me tell you, what's the, without going through all those names, which would be meaningless to you, and you'd forget them as soon as I mention them, let me just tell you what's going on in these verses. Abraham had two brothers. Haran died before this. The second brother was a guy named Nabor, and he had 12 sons, and those sons had children. So what's going on here is that one of those sons had a daughter. Look at verse 23. Bethuel begat Rebekah. That is what you need to know between verses 20 and 24. One of his relatives had a daughter named Rebekah. And as we will see as we continue our studies in the book of Genesis, she becomes Isaac's wife. So God is going to fulfill his promise that Abraham is going to have a large number of descendants through Isaac. And this passage ends by saying, God said, I'm going to bless you. And it ends with, and here's how I'm going to do it. I've got a wife all picked out for Isaac. By the way, there are only two people in the Bible for whom God picked out a wife. Eve, who had no other option, and Isaac. Those, that's it. So other than that, the Bible says you can marry whomsoever you want to, only in the Lord. That's 1 Corinthians 7, verse 39. Uh, some people teach that God's got this one person for you to marry, not according to the Scripture. The only people that was true of was Adam and Isaac. But the Bible says you can marry whomsoever you want to. Only restriction is if you're a Christian, you must marry a Christian. That's all it says. Other than that, good luck. I mean, be careful. Um, and really, I should say that. Uh, the Bible would say, be wise. Because while you have the freedom to marry everybody, not everybody is a good fit. So make sure it's a good fit. All right. Let me uh, sum all this up and make some observations. The sum of this chapter is real simple. God tested Abraham by giving him a command to obey. And Abraham immediately and completely obeyed it because he believed God. And God blessed him and others because of that faith. In short, when believers pass God's test, by trusting and obeying, God abundantly blesses them. Did you catch that? Did that go past you real quick? 
This is what you need to put in your pocket and carry home. All right? Here's the point that applies to us. When believers trust the Lord and obey Him, He abundantly blesses them. You want to go to heaven? Trust. You want to be blessed here? Trust and obey. So, let me close by making two rather simple points. God tests believers by giving them a command to obey. And those commands sometimes involve sacrificing a believer's most valuable possession, such as his son or his money. Constable, uh, a commentary on this passage notes, what God called Abraham to give back to him was something he had provided for Abraham supernaturally in faithfulness to his promise. Some God, sometimes God tests our faith by asking us to give back to him what he has supernaturally and faithfully provided, not just what he has provided through regular channels. thought that was an interesting observation. The irony is that some hold back their son, and in the end, they lose him. Some hoard their silver and end up losing it. How many have not worshipped and end up having nothing to sacrifice? How many have never obeyed and consequently are never blessed? It is the fear of the lost that makes us hold back, especially when we fear the loss of life or our most valuable possession. It is then that we struggle with the Lord the most and resist submitting to Him. Hear me and hear me well. Resistance leads to loss and death. Submission leads to life and blessing. When you resist the will of God, when you resist being obedient to Him, you lose. He that finds his life loses it. He that loses his life finds it. Wolves sometimes fight over territorial boundaries. When one wolf realizes he cannot win, he surrenders by exposing his juggler vein to the teeth of his adversary. For some unexplained reason, the victor does not kill the wolf, but allows the conquered to go free. Isn't that interesting? In the case of a believer, struggle with the Lord when he exposes his juggler vein. God does not kill him. He lets him go free. He blesses him. So don't resist the Lord. Obey him. And the last point I want to make is God blesses obedient believers. He tests us by giving us something to obey. And when we do, he blesses us. That's the point of this passage. It is a test to see if you will obey him. And if you do, he will bless you. Now, as you know, I like to tell stories called illustrations. So I thought, how am I going to end this with an illustration? 
And then it occurred to me, there is no greater illustration than Abraham. I mean, just look at what happened to him. God blessed Abraham. Notice all the ways he got blessed. One, God allowed him to keep his most precious possession, his son. Two, God provided a sacrifice to be used in worship. Three, God reaffirmed his covenant and even added to it. Four, God put Abraham in the hall of faith in Hebrews chapter 11. More space is given to Abraham in Hebrews 11 than any other person. Five, God made Abraham his friend, according to Isaiah 41 and James chapter 2. So one author says, God abundantly blesses all who obey. Every time Abraham made a sacrifice for God, the Lord responded by giving Abraham more. One, Abraham left his homeland and God gave him a new one. Two, Abraham left his extended family, and God gave him a much larger family. Three, Abraham offered the best of the land to Lot, and gave him more land. God gave him more land. Four, Abraham gave up the king of Sodom's reward, and God gave him more wealth. Five, Abraham gave up Ishmael, and God made Ishmael the father of a multitude of Abraham's posterity. Six, Abraham was willing to give up Isaac, and God allowed him to live, and through him gave Abraham numerous descendants. In each case, God gave Abraham a deeper relationship with himself, as well as more material prosperity. Note the closeness of this fellowship and Abraham's response to God's revelation. He says, here I am, verse 1 and verse 11. God has not promised Christians greater physical blessings as he did Abraham. But whenever we make a sacrifice for him, he gives us a deeper relationship to himself at least. And for this reason, we should not fear making personal sacrifices for the Lord. This test of Abraham's faith is the climax of Abraham's personal history in the book of Genesis. This is the last major incident in the record of his life. And it's all about, if you obey me, I will bless you. And for that, he is the great example of the father of faith in all of the scripture. God tests you to see if he can trust you with more of his blessing. Maybe I should put it that way. God tests you to see if he can trust you with more of his blessing. And the least we get out of it is a closer relationship to him. As the hymn says, nothing between my soul and the Savior, so that his blessed Faith may be seen. Nothing prevent the least of his favor. Keep the way clear. Let nothing come between. Let's pray, shall we? Father, thank you for this illustration from Abraham. Lord, imprint this upon our brain. 
that if we just trust you, you will bless us abundantly above all that we could ask or think. Give us the grace, not to fear, but to have faith. Not to withdraw, but to move forward in obedience to all that you've told us to do. In Jesus' name, amen.